21 minutes it is after 7 p.m. It's our wrap of the top business stories here on the Mighty Metro. Bandila Matandela, market analyst, joins me to take a look at the latest in company news, the latest coming out of our continent, and also, I guess, some policy matters as well. Ndaka Matandela, Maskwa Mgel. But that's a story for, for another day. That's a story for another day. I want us to maybe start off with this um, story that came through this afternoon. Uh, raids at dis- the likes of Discovery, Old Mutual, yeah. Sunlum, and uh, I guess, uh, yeah, five other major insurance firms, including the likes of Bright Rock and others. Um, what's happening here? The competition authorities, we're going to be speaking to them in the next few minutes or so. But Kanya Kanya Kwenza Gandoni, they are saying they've got reasonable grounds to suspect that there's some collusion happening here. Yeah, I mean, I think um, the information is probably still going to be coming out, Aya, but um, so far what we know is that, uh, they, 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 as you mentioned, these companies have been raided. Uh, you know, the Bright Rock, the Discoveries, Old Mutual, PPS, Sunlam. Mm. Um, and the, the, basically the Competition Commission said that they've got, um, you know, reasonable grounds to believe that um, there has been price collusion between these particular entities and that um, they've been basically sharing prices um, uh, that allow for them to be able to price actually for for certain products, you know, products uh, like retirement annuities, red disease cover, chronic uh, medical conditions, as well as disability and life cover. Mm. So, I mean, I think it is quite a serious um, issue, Aya, particularly if it can be proven, right, because it just... Uh, it speaks to anti-competition um, issues, and uh, really, uh, we want uh, an industry that promotes competition because that's what benefits consumers. But I suppose more information is going to begin to come out, uh, depending on also what they begin to find um, from from uh, some of the documents that they've managed uh, to to take. Mm-hmm. Now, now I guess the issue here is about the pricing of some of the products these entities would yeah. sell. I mean, anything from dread disease cover, life insurance. Uh, and other forms of sort of risk products that they would have. Um, I mean, were they sitting comparing notes? What what effectively happened here? Yeah, so it seems like they're comparing notes, right, particularly on pricing, right? They're sharing their prices to basically say, listen, um, and I imagine what, what could be happening, right, if it is, of course, what's happening. Price collusion generally, what you see is that they'll share what the prices would be and sort of fix it around a certain range, you know, so basically it will then uh, lead to a situation where there's no real competition in the market. Uh, as opposed to where companies don't know each other's prices, right? You might find one that uh, probably charges much lower and then forces the other one down. You know, mm. there's usually those dynamics. But uh, in this particular case, it seems like there's been sharing of notes, there's been sharing of um, what the prices of these products would be for a particular year. And um, then it, it sort of sets the tone from an, from, from an industry perspective to then say, you know, um, we charge between a certain rate, um, and it basically yeah, just re- eliminates competition within that industry. And then, I guess the the other question mark that one would have, uh, insofar as this is concerned, is what the, what's the punitive sanction? I mean, I remember a few years ago, uh, and it's something we're going to raise with the competition authorities. There were a few banks who apparently yeah. were involved in the fixing of what are called sort of bid and offer spreads. Uh, so that's like the margin they would make on foreign currency or foreign yeah. exchange transactions. Um, and their Forex division, of course, was involved in, apparently they even had WhatsApp groups. They even had a, 
you know, Reddit accounts and so on, uh, where they were sharing information on what these spreads would look like and effectively cornering the market. I recall then that um, a lot of us were very unhappy about the type of sanction that was then levied. Um, are the sanctions punitive enough to be a deterrent to some of the people who are, I guess, involved in this kind of collusive activity? Yeah, I, I think I think uh, you hit the nail um, on the head there, right? I think that's where some of the problems are, right? Is the fact that the sanctions that generally follow some of these things, uh, at least in my opinion, are not, you know, are not are not in big enough or are not enough to be able to deter them from going down this route. I mean, we've seen this previously, even within. You know, I remember, I think it was the Tiger Brands and there was the bread collusion, you know, and the fines that were, 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 were given, you know, were so minute compared to the, to the money that they potentially have made and accumulated over the couple of years. So we'll, we'll have to hear from the Competition Commission, right, once there. I mean, I suppose it's going to be a step-by-step process. I mean, the first thing is to find them, uh, well, to prove whether or not they're guilty and indeed that did this happened, you know, and also to start looking at things when... Did it start happening? How much could they have potentially benefited from this price collusion? And then look at, at, at appropriate sanctions. You know, for me, I think if you want to stop collusion, you're going to have to make sure that the sanctions that you put in place are such that they can discourage these entities completely. You know, so I think it's going to go down, it's going to boil down to that. You know, and I think, as you mentioned, you know, when that banking issue with the with Forex came up, it was, you know, the sanctions that came in, a lot of people were not happy about them. So I think the pressure is also going to be on the Competition Commission to actually impose sanctions that uh, would um, discourage uh, this type of, um, you know, uh, type of doing business, yeah, like this type of way of doing business. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's shift away, I guess, from that story, and it's a story we're going to return to uh, with uh, the cartels division out of the Competition Commission. And uh, now uh, take a look at uh, Distel. I was saying earlier on, it seems... Uh, you know, uh, the bounce back and recovery is moving in earnest from some of the restrictions on trade that were levied on liquor products. Yeah. And uh, yeah, top line revenue up 20, 20.8%, 17.6% up higher are the volumes of uh, trade and uh, all of that driven by the premium ready to drink segments. Uh, and it seems abandoning at by Natalie Yeah, I agree. Even spirit growth so the abundance. No, I mean, I think no surprises there. I, I mean, I think the alcohol industry really was impacted quite significantly by the by the restrictions uh, coming out of um, you know the, the pandemic. You know, in terms of whether it's sales restrictions, and I think they've been on a recovery. Um, so really, no surprises. I mean, I think for me, what was interesting is the fact that. You know, from a volume perspective, so it was not more a pricing uh, increase yeah. more than it was a volume. You know, so it's seemingly people are consuming much more, and maybe you know, I, 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 I you know, just just also shows the state of affairs in South Africa, right? People with frustration, maybe just resorting to, to to alcohol and all of those things. But yeah, no surprises on on, on my side. It was also interesting to see that. Uh, um, their, their growth was predominantly on the domestic market, um, you know. But I think Africa as well increased quite. Africa revenue sixteen percent, international revenue seven point nine percent. I mean, um, and I think also an interesting part is that EBITDA was actually up up twenty point eight percent, which is exactly the same percentage as uh, group revenue. Whether this suggests that um, from a cost perspective, they've uh, really reached economies of scale. It would be an interesting one to actually really unpack those numbers. But it was mm. also it was quite interesting to see that the revenue growth filtered down directly to their EBITDA growth. 
Um, so yeah, I mean, I suppose if you're sitting there as management at Tisal, uh, you you you're smiling where you are uh, right now, and uh, you're probably looking forward to any audit and risk report meeting. Yeah, but also there's the looming prospect of that deal. I mean, uh, Dutch-based brewer Heineken hovering over yeah. Distel. Um, and yep. uh, potentially hoping to access, I guess, market segments that they ordinarily would not have been in. I think they were only involved in the cider business via the Strongbow yep. offering. Uh, and now effectively going to have access to a, a diverse set of brands, uh, be it on the sort of wine bottled and boxed right through to Amarula and then, of course, to the ready-to-drink segment as well, uh, some of which are really premium brands. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it will only serve to, 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 to add on their growth uh, and, 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 and it will just help them even further. So it's actually interesting that actually that deal with Heineken um, to, is, is one of the reasons that was noted as to why they didn't declare dividends because of some of the, um, the agreements on that particular deal. But I think, mm. um, you know, if that when that goes through, it will definitely just add to the distal stable and it will give them access to even a broader market. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, I guess the the other question mark, insofar as um, you know, this uh, player is concerned, uh, Distel here, is the point you are raising around scale economies. I mean, are there massive base effects that are sort of baked into these numbers? Because I guess the comparison period was just so shortly after the restrictions on trade were lifted. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I think perhaps right if like, mm. uh, you want comparison to 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 like where yeah. uh, prior to all those disruptions to really get to see what the real growth is because this is the recovery growth more than it is just uh, the business growth you know so you'd be looking at it uh, on both sides you know I suppose management of course will want to push the angle that they've achieved growth and that maximize they've hit that profit target but I think you would look at it two way you know uh, you want to look you want to compare it to last year but also you want to have you have your eye on pre-COVID um, levels as well to really see if the growth is really from a business perspective mm-hmm. or it's just a bounce back uh, from the level, lower levels we saw last year yeah let's shift our attention to Angola now uh, yeah one of the oil rich nations um, yeah. in our continent uh, and uh, yeah a nation that has always been, I guess, remarkable for how high prices are. It's understood for the expatriate community. It seems a lot of the consumer and food stuff still imported from Portugal. Um, over 80% of uh, you know, export earnings still linked to oil. Um, they might be smiling at the moment just uh, because of what oil prices are doing, uh, but also might uh, be correctly concerned because a lot of the oil fields are maturing and they might not yeah. be able to pump as much out of that as they would like. What's in the inbox, I guess, of the new government that's coming in? It seems all the polls are suggesting the MPLA, uh, the incumbents, uh, will uh, continue to uh, govern Angola, yeah. uh, but uh, they're going to be faced by the daunting task of diversifying that economy. Yeah, I mean, I think um, it's, a, it's, a, it's quite a mimic task that lies ahead. I mean, the inflation numbers coming up there are over 20%. You know, I think the biggest the biggest risk or the biggest task is going to be diversifying the economy, right? I mean, it's um, it's, a, it's an economy that's uh, heavily reliant on oil. Of course, they've benefited a lot through the commodity boom, through the you know the rise in the oil prices. They've managed to reduce their debt levels quite significantly. But I think they need to start looking beyond that. You know, they need to look at potentially their manufacturing sector. I mean, I think they also had a position where about I think 79% of their economy is informal. They've got significant high youth unemployment, uh, you know. So I think the, 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 the really the, the incoming government needs to really think of different ways in which they're going to be able to create jobs, stimulate economic growth, and diversify um, the economy. That's going to be the biggest thing. How do they diversify the economy and uh, reduce reliance on 
oil because um, at this point it's not sustainable. You know, they are they are their oil fields are, are maturing, and it's only a matter of time before. I mean, well, they're already in in quite economic turmoil, but it would it will the situation will definitely worsen if they don't begin to diversify. So, um, I mean, both both candidates that were running for that uh, election were also just promising around you know the diversification around creation of jobs. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see how they're actually going to to deliver this. Um, and I mean, the reliance on Portugal is also quite significant mm. and how actually they're going to be able to stimulate the agricultural sector because, I mean, even basic food products in that country are imported. Um, so it's, yeah, it's going to be a very, it's going to be a very interesting one and a very moment task uh, on um, uh, whether it's uh, the, the current um, president uh, continuing for his second term as numbers sure. seem to be suggesting at this moment. But um, a number of tasks indeed. I suppose uh, similar tasks uh, that we have in South Africa, right? Of course, we are more 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 diverse. But uh, in terms of you know unemployment, stimulating economic growth, but yeah, uh, very difficult one. No, definitely. I mean, I think our, our challenge of industrialization and uh, diversification of our economy is probably not as daunting as uh, that of uh, Angola, which uh, for many years, I guess, you know, maybe there's a particular kind of comfort uh, that comes with knowing you're going to earn petrodollars. Um, and uh, we, but also it comes with significant risk and vulnerability as well. Talking about policy, the Organization for Economic uh, Cooperation and Development, the OECD, uh, released its uh, review on South Africa earlier on today. And I must say, you know, I always look with a lot of, um, you know, uh, skepticism at um, the policy reviews that come through from the World Bank, the IMF, the OECD and others. Um, and uh, similarly with this one, I guess uh, a mixed bag. What do you make of um, some of what has been put on the table here? Um, yeah, that is, yeah, seen, I guess, to be part of the economic turnaround that South Africa needs to do. I mean, that suggestion being made to increase it from 15 to 17% and then also broadening of the personal income and corporate tax bases. Yeah, I mean, I found it very interesting. I, I mean, I think some of the things were quite extreme, right? And I mean, I think... Um, the, the, the impacts or the effects of them would be felt quite largely. I mean, I think the first the first one there is the one you mentioned around the VAT increase. I mean, I think that two percent increase would be significant. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think the worry has always been that um, you know this will be felt by by the by, by the poor in the country because ultimately it will mean that food prices um, and a lot of other things would increase quite significantly. So I thought that was quite extreme. You know, there was also that suggestion around. Potentially um, removing some of the things that um, allow for, if you can call them the wealthy, um, to, 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 to reduce their taxable in the right stuff. It's the right things that they're suggesting in terms of pension funds, retirement annuities, and sustaining those tax, those tax uh, um, deductions. But I think, you know, we potentially, there is a case to say we need to relook at that because we do find a situation where although tax is quite high um, for the wealthy. Um, there's so many deductions and there's so mm. many, you know, there's so many clever in the way that they end up paying so so such reduced tax. Yeah. And I mean, I think the point they're making is that in an unequal society like South Africa, where about 80% of the resources are owned by the mm. right? of course they did say mm. that would be counted, qualified. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, the question of uh, you know, corruption within that space. We saw what happened uh, during the COVID-19. But, um, mm. yeah, interesting suggestions so, are for so me you know, quite I mean, extreme. I'm, I'm quite interested, especially in the tax proposals. I mean, I, and I think you've already mentioned the VAT one. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I recall what happened the last time. There was a VAT increase from 14% to 15%. Um, and it's um, certainly had, for all intents and purposes, of, you know, a very detrimental impact on, in particular, poor households. But let's leave that aside yeah. for a second. 
the point being made about tax exemptions on estate taxes, on you know medical aid tax credits, life insurance, and all of that kind of mm. stuff is the point actually we were making yesterday when we were talking about this whole MEC, you know, of health in Limpopo story, suggesting that you know if indeed the issues around resources in our public se- healthcare sector, why is it then? that Ayabonga and Bandile, who can afford a medical aid, must still be incentivized via the tax system in order to take that up. Um, so I think there's all of those issues that, from a policy design perspective, raise some questions. And then the other one, which I, I surprisingly didn't appear here, but uh, the World Bank raised in 2017, were all of these tax incentives that went to sectors like the mining sector, where even though they're supposed to pay a certain you know, corporate tax yeah. rate, all of the effective yeah. tax rates, you know, depreciation on, um, you know, uh, new assets, uh, all manner of capital allowances and so on, uh, were on the one hand incentivizing capital intense production at the expense of a lot of jobs, but on the other hand, were effectively going into sectors that were showing that there isn't really productivity of that capital that's deployed anyway, and uh, it might have been better used in construction, manufacturing and elsewhere. That, it seems, didn't feature here. Yeah, I mean, I think there is definitely a place in uh, Ayabonga because otherwise there would have been the burden of the state, right? And there would have mm. been uh, reliance on the public health system. And that by being able to take up medical aid, they then, you know, reduce the burden of the state. On the state. And it would be interesting to actually see, you know, uh, what, what what is the benefit uh, or the reduction in the burden as opposed to, 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 to the tax benefit that they, re- they receive. It would be interesting to look at those numbers. But I mean, I think um, this issue around corporate, corporates, right, and corporate checks, and um, I mean, corporate checks were reduced, um, you know, and, and, and seemingly there's so many checks and incentives. I mean, mm. the argument has always been it's to stimulate growth, it's yeah, to stimulate yeah. production, it's to, to push employment. Bandile. But uh, seemingly we're not seeing it come. Yeah, let, let's do this. Pause there for a second. I want you to conclude on this point on the tax incentives and I guess the effectiveness or efficacy of them. We've just got a spot break we want to take quickly. Let's take the break. When we come back, I'll allow you to conclude the point and we'll wrap up our business wrap. You won't believe all the unbelievable deals at Engine. Deals so unimaginable, they'll make you say you lie. Like three Cadbury chocolates just for 31 Rand. And if you think that's hard to believe, we'll even keep them going until the end of August. Visit any Engine quick shop for more unbelievable deals that'll give you even more reasons to say July. Promo ends 31 August 2022. Terms and conditions apply. Engine, with us, you are number one. As we wrap up our business wrap of the day uh, today with Mandela Matandela, market analyst. Mandela, just as we wrap up on the story of the OECD review and uh, some of the proposals insofar as tax is concerned, and they also raise that a lot of this is about raising money to sort of, I guess, underwrite interventions that confront inequality. So it might be an extension of the Social Relief of Distress Grant, also known as maybe in future Basic Income Grant, uh, and then, of course, I guess, uh, massive investment in road infrastructure and other network industries and uh, uh, just raising the um, ratio of public investment to GDP. Um, well, what do you make of that? And I guess the point you were making about how effective or not uh, existing tax and non-tax incentives have been? Yeah, I mean, I think we probably just need to look at it a bit more. And I mean, I think the, you know, the, 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 the certain institutions that are there that could potentially even, you know, look at this, uh, look at this, the, the, the benefits of the tax incentives even more and whether or not they actually are achieving what they were intended to do, right? Um, I mean, I think 
some might argue that with the high unemployment, with all of these things, we haven't really um, achieved what we were seeking to, 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 to achieve. So I think more needs to be done to actually really look at this and actually then find that optimal point and, uh, and, and a way to restructure our tax so that it, 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 um, it's beneficial to all. I mean, I think definitely there is, there is a need and an urgent need to, 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 to bring in interventions that are going to begin to bridge that inequality gap in South Africa, which is, is, is quite, you know, I mean, what, according to some of the ratings, we are the most unequal society in the world. Uh, of course, based on available data, but um, I'm mean, nothing. There's, there's definitely a need to 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 bring in some of those interventions. Uh, whether or not these are the right ones, I am. I, mean, I think for me, that's not the real point. Um, mm-hmm. I think for now, the point is that there is a need for us to begin to relook at this, you know. And of course, depending on who's bringing in the suggestions, it might be extreme to the left or might be extreme to the right, depending. Of course, there's issues of interest, there's issues sure. of all of that. But um, the, the, the bottom line is that interventions are needed and they needed quite urgently. Ndagamata Ndela, we're going to have to leave it here for tonight. As always, a pleasure catching up with you and thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. Bandila Matandela, the market analyst, joining us for our wrap of the top business stories.